My name is Vicki Kuyper, and our pastor, Alan Fuller, is in the student union today. He's teaching the middle school and high school kids, which I think is a wonderful thing for a pastor to do several times a year. And if you don't know me, I am on the board of uh, servant leaders here at Mountain Park. I also, my husband and I, teach the Hot Topics, Hot Dates marriage class here. We've been married for 30 years and have two grown kids. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And also in the past uh, 25 years, what I do in my spare time is I have been a writer, which is one reason why Alan asked me to come and speak to you today about how a writer creates an authentic, believable character and what that has to teach us about working on our own character. But before we get started, let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you that we live in a country where we are free to enter this building and worship you. We thank you for getting us here this morning for the things that we've gone through this week, you know, each and every one. And we just ask that now you would quiet our hearts and help us really listen to what you want us to hear, Father. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, when I was a kid, one of my very best friends, one of my first friends, was fictional. I made him up. His name was Petey, and he was my age, about my height. He had red hair and freckles, and in my mind, he had kind of a Huckleberry Finn thing going on. You know, he had bare feet and his pants rolled up. And there are definite benefits to having imaginary friends. After all, their schedule pretty much always coincides with yours, and they don't mess with your stuff or hog the remote or eat the last ho-ho out of the pantry. Also, they always say really nice things to you, and if they don't, you can kill them off and create someone new. <laughs> so Petey, he was here solely to fill my needs. Petey had no needs of his own. He had no backstory. From a writer's point of view, backstory is more, just, more than just someone's history. It's also their personality. It's their character traits. It's their deepest longings and their greatest fears. It's everything that guides and motivates the decisions that they make. The same is true of us. If you look at people as icebergs, backstory is all the stuff that's under the surface. Because we know that when we first meet someone, what you see isn't always what you get. But the better we get to know others' backstory as well as our own, the better we understand why people do the things we do. Now, unlike Petey, I had backstory, which is why Petey happened to be there in the first place. And this is because, at six years old, my dad got a job for just one year in New York. So he moved our family to New York, and he refused to live in an apartment. So we moved five times in one year. The first place we lived was a motel for a couple months, where we did all of our dishes in the bathtub. And then we moved out to Long Island and lived in a summer home. And the problem with living in a summer home during winter is that you have absolutely no neighbors. There were no friends, nobody for me to play with. I had a sister who was four and a half, but I wanted someone my own age, hence Petey. Also, Petey had red hair and freckles because I had red hair and freckles. And even at that age, I knew that this was not considered an attractive trait. But whenever I looked at Petey, I thought he was pretty good looking. And then, after that year, I moved back to California, and I got real friends. And Petey just kind of faded away because his job was done. You know, for writers, 
there are places for people like Petey. There are two different kinds of characters. There are round and there are flat. Round characters are dynamic characters. They grow, they change, they have backstory. Flat characters are static characters like Petey. They're kind of cardboard cutouts that you just kind of throw into a story. They have no backstory. Now, if you want an example of this, think back to the original Star Trek, the uh, show, not the new generation, back when I was a kid. And here we have a landing party being beamed down to a hostile planet. And we see Captain Kirk, and we see Spock, and we see Scotty, and we see Bones, and then we see this other guy. And we don't know his name. And probably in the credits, he'll be listed as something like crew member number three. We know what is going to happen to him. He is going to die. That is because writers use flat characters, like crew number number three, just to move the story along, to add tension, without putting anyone we really care about, the round characters, into danger. Mostly for the genres where we see a lot of flat characters are action and adventure and sci-fi and westerns and horror and suspense. It's anything that is more of a plot-driven story, where we care more about the circumstances than we do the characters. And this is in opposition to what would be a character-driven story, which would be something like The Help or something like Forrest Gump. So why do we care about all this? I mean, you don't come on a Sunday morning so you can learn how to be a better writer. You come how you can learn how to live and love better. Well, actually, there's a tool that writers use in developing round characters called a character chart. And it's something that we can use to help us get a handle on our own character and understand ourselves a little better so we can make changes. If you, um, hopefully when you came in, you ended up getting a character chart. If not, you can pick up one on the way out. It's a little mini one. It has a list of 20 different questions. And I say it's mini because I'm working on a project now where just the questions, there are 10 pages of questions. So by the time I finish filling it out, I could have 20, 30, 50 pages written about this character. Now, I won't use all of the little details in the story I'm writing. However, I will understand what motivates and guides that character. I will understand what could be the one thing that would most throw that character's life into turmoil, and what would be a situation that could cause him or her to change. So most of the questions are really self-explanatory, but like the first one, full name and nickname. There's often a story behind this, it's part of our backstory. For me, it was that I was born six weeks premature. And when my folks got to the hospital, they hadn't really discussed names. Because in my mom's mind, she had my name picked out ever since she was little. Every single doll she had, she named Kathy Jean, because her mother's name was Catherine and her name was Jean. So her daughter, if she ever had one, was going to be Kathy Jean. But once my father heard this, he said, oh no, no. I had an old girlfriend named Kathy. We are not naming our daughter Kathy. So then they were stuck. So they went out and they got a baby book and started with the A's. And they worked their way all the way through the book, got to the end, and my mother said, you know, we haven't found anyone we really like. You want to start over? And my dad said, no, I'm just too tired. Go with the last name in the book. Hence, Victoria. 
Now, I think it's interesting that my name means victory, and it was kind of chosen by default, but this is part of my backstory. There are other questions in here that you look at your first memory, the things that make you most at ease or most ill at ease, or maybe your most prized possession. This would be the one thing other than your family and pets that you would grab and you run out of a house if it's on fire. Also, there's something like, um, well, number one on your bucket list. We talk about the bucket list here a lot at Mountain Park. And in case writing is something that's on your bucket list, I want to let you know that at the end of November, I'm going to be leading a workshop. So if that's on your bucket list, you can cross that off and put a different thing here on your uh, character chart. Also, how your faith in God or lack thereof affects your daily life or a one-word description of yourself, or one word that maybe other people would use to describe yourself. And are, are these the same word? Your most well-guarded secret, the thing that you don't want anybody here to know, or your potentially fatal flaw. This is the most important one, the one that basically all of the other questions are leading up to help you discover. And if you think back to high school or college, any English lit class you had, undoubtedly there was an essay question you remember that said, what was the main character's fatal flaw? This would be his Achilles heel. This would be the fault in his character that threatened to destroy his whole life. I'm a very visual per person, so when I picture a fatal flaw, I picture a literal fault, like a fault line for an earthquake. Now, having a fatal flaw does not make you a bad person. It makes you human. We all have different things in our lives, different weaknesses and issues and struggles that we work with over and over and over again in our lives. But like in California, if you know where those fault lines are, then you can build the foundation of what's around it stronger so when earthquakes happen, you don't absolutely fall apart. So to get a better idea of how to look at our backstory and figure out what our fatal flaw is, we're going to take a look at the life of David. Now, the Bible is God's backstory, part of it anyway. And if you want to understand God's character and what motivates him, read the Bible. This whole year, Alan's been also talking about different characters in the Bible and their character traits. And I chose David because he's someone that we know pretty well. And we have a good chunk of his backstory in here. You know that David's name is mentioned over 1,000 times in the Bible, more than any other name other than Jesus and God. He also is remembered as being a great Bible hero. He killed Goliath with just a stone. He wrote more than half of all of the Psalms. He conquered the Philistines. He conquered Jerusalem and ended up being king there, remembered as the greatest king outside of Jesus. He is someone who God described as a man after my own heart. So how can someone like this end up not only having an affair, but ending up murdering the husband of the woman he had the affair with. This seems so out of character. But if we look at David's backstory, we'll recognize that maybe this is not so out of character after all. I mean, first, let's be honest, David was a musician. Not only was he a musician, he was a poet. And he danced before the Lord with all of his might. He was an artist. And there is a reason why the word temperamental and artist are often paired together. They are known for being moody and emotional. 
And being an artist, being in touch with your deep emotions is actually a very positive thing. It's very helpful in the creative process. The problem is when you use it outside of that creative process and make more emotion-led decisions instead of rational decisions. For David, being an artist was one of his great strengths, but a lot of times our greatest strengths also have corresponding weaknesses. So what was a strength for David could also mean that sometimes he led more with his heart than he did with his head. Well, along with that, let's take a look at some of the women in his life. Obviously not all of them because he had at least seven or eight wives, probably a lot of concubines we don't even know about. But one of his first wives, her name was Michael. And this is Saul's daughter. Saul was the king that came before David and the king that David was replacing. Anyway, so David marries Michael, but then Saul kind of goes crazy and decides he's going to kill David. So David runs away and he leaves Michael behind and he's gone for years. So Saul takes his daughter who's been abandoned and gives him to another man in marriage. When David comes back and kind of takes over the kingdom, one of the first things he wants to do is he wants Michael back. Now, Michael and her new husband really love each other deeply and make this very clear to David, but David doesn't care. David wants Michael, so he takes her. Then we go a little further in David's story, and we meet a character named Nabal, and his name means fool. So there's obviously a whole story that must go along with that in his backstory. But he lived up to, or down to, his name, and ended up kind of insulting David's men. So David and his men came back to take retribution from Nabal, because that's what they do through the whole Old Testament. And they go back, and Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, hears what's happening. And the Bible tells us that Abigail is intelligent and beautiful, and she works out this way, kind of smooths everything out, so David can leave and not kill off her whole family. Well, David takes note, and about 10 days later, Nabal drops dead. So, of course, David decides he takes Abigail as another wife. Then we Fast forward into 2 Samuel, and here it talks about it's the spring of the year when kings go to war. But David sent all of his men to war, and he just decided to kind of hang around the palace like a royal couch potato. And one night, he can't sleep. He gets up, he's walking along outside on top of the palace, surveying his kingdom, and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath on top of her rooftop. This was obviously something that happened before the days of Google Earth. Anyway, <laughs> what does he do? He takes her. He sends the messengers to bring her back, and the rest is history or backstory. Now, what happens, however, is that Bathsheba gets pregnant, and her husband happens to be one of the soldiers that David had sent away to war. So he brings them back and tries to get them to sleep together to cover up the fact that she was pregnant by another man. But Bathsheba's husband is a very honorable man, and he says, I can't take pleasure like that while all my men are fighting. So he refuses. So David sends them back to battle. And since Bathsheba's husband doesn't drop over dead as conveniently as Nabal did, he has him murdered. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. Well, notice if we look at David's backstory that he has a habit of taking the women 
that he wants. Perhaps his fatal flaw is his weakness for beautiful women, or maybe it's his sense of entitlement, or maybe it's that temptation to abuse his power. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, most men can stand up to adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Here was David, he had been a shepherd and now he is king. That's heady stuff. He also was charismatic, he was creative, he was handsome, he had a great following. People like this, everything seemed to go his way and often they don't really understand life not working out the way they want it to work out. Also, he was a great warrior. He was mighty in battle. Maybe he really just didn't know what to do with himself in peace. If we go back and look at David's backstory and his temperament and his strengths and his weaknesses, maybe his choices weren't so out of character after all. And that should give us pause because if someone like David someone who God calls a man after my own heart, someone who God entrusted with all of his people, someone who in the Psalms talks about his desire to love God, his desire to live a righteous life. If someone like that can fall that far, so can we. Now maybe if David had paid more attention to his backstory, if he had paid attention to his weaknesses, he could have made different choices. We don't know. But the good news is that David's story didn't end there. David humbled himself before God. He confessed what he did. He asked God for forgiveness. God forgave him. And then David accepted that forgiveness and got up and moved on. It doesn't mean that he didn't have to live with the consequences of what he did, some of which were very heartbreaking. However, it meant that because of David's repentance and God's forgiveness, David's fatal flaw was not fatal to his character. And when we end up falling in ways like this, we have that very same opportunity. Well, you know, it's really pretty easy to look at David, to point out all of his fatal flaws, but to look at ourselves is a little bit harder Especially because it's so much easier for us, we can look at other people and point out their weakness in no time and be absolutely blind to that same weakness in ourselves. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 when he says, why do you watch that speck of sawdust in that your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? One of the reasons is because we really do like judging other people. And it's so easy, particularly flat story people, people with no backstory, at least to us, strangers. How in September 11th, you know, Alan talked about us and them. It's really easy to judge them. People who may be public figures, but we don't really know personally. People on TV. Why do you think reality TV shows are so popular? because watching them makes us feel just a little bit superior. And I do have a confession to make, yes, in front of the whole church, that a few weeks ago I did watch Toddlers and Tiaras. And I must say that I did sit there with my mouth open and felt kind of like I was watching the fall of Rome. But, you know, afterwards I thought, I don't know these people. I don't know any of their backstory, and this is certainly not any type of unbiased documentary. 
I mean, this is something that is designed, it is edited to get across a specific point of view. It is there to encourage us to judge other people. That's what gives it high ratings. And this is just one reason why it is such a good thing that God is the only one who really is worthy of judging people. He is the only one who knows everybody's backstory. He doesn't just see the tip of the iceberg, he knows the whole berg. And that includes in our lives as well. God knows our backstory better than we do ourselves. And we really need his help to uncover the fatal flaw in our lives. That's one reason why if you decide to work on the character chart, one of the first things you need to do is invite God into the process. You know, it says in the Bible that if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us. And this is a place where we really need wisdom. We need to be able to see ourselves clearly because there are times in our lives when we go, I think confidence is a, straight when, is a strength when actually it's closer to cockiness. We need God to show us the truth about ourselves. Something that can also help us fill out this character chart is talking about it with our close friends, people who know our backstory, people who are not going to judge us, perhaps a spouse or someone who's known us for a really long time. Ask them, so what is that one word you'd use to describe me? Or this is what I'm thinking my fatal flaw is. Does that make sense to you? Also, this is something you'll want to take time to do. It's not just like a little Cosmo quiz that you can fill out. This is something that you'll want to look over the questions, maybe today, and then just kind of let them sit a while. Ask God to bring things to mind over the next couple weeks to answer these questions, because some of them might change over time. You know, there is a piece of advice that we get as writers that says show don't tell and this is something else that can help us in filling out the character chart in writing show don't tell means create characters that you don't tell me that they're courageous and they're loyal or a loser that you show me through their words and through their actions that i know who they are if in our life we feel that we are generous or honest, or loyal, devoted to God and our, our wife, our kids. Look back over the last week, the last month, and write down what we have said and what we have done that shows that these are true character traits in our life. And then if there are fewer things than you would like, Maybe this is not so strong as you thought, and maybe this is an area of your life that you really need to work on. You know, there's uh, one thing that David wrote, Psalm 18, and it talks a little bit, I look at it in context of looking at our backstory and then using that backstory to change because our backstory matters, but not as much as what we're going to do with it. I'm going to read Psalm 18 uh, verses 20 through 24 in the message. And this is a paraphrase, so you, if you have a different version, it's going to sound a lot different. Um, what I suggest is just listen while I read this and then later go back and read Psalm 18 because they're saying the same thing, only Eugene Peterson is saying it in a more poetic way. He says, God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. When I got my act together, he gave me a fresh start. 
Now I'm alert to God's ways. I don't take God for granted. Every day I review the way he works. I try not to miss a trick. I feel put back together and I'm watching my step. God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to his eyes. God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to his eyes. When we share our backstory with God, we can make true changes in our lives. Now, as I mentioned to you, I'm kind of a visual person. And there's a poem that I heard probably 20 years ago by Portia Nelson that really captures this idea of change. So I want to share it with you. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend that I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open and I know where I am. It is my fault and I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. <laughs> you know, Alan talked last week about a reason why we should work on our character. After all, we are already accepted and forgiven by God. And it's hard work to tackle some of this stuff and to make change in our life. But he mentioned that it gives us a chance to redefine what achievement is in our life by looking at 1 Peter, no, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Well, I have another reason for you, and that is so we can live a more character-driven life instead of a plot-driven life. Remember, a plot-driven story has flat characters, people who do not grow or change. They are people who have no backstory or act as though they have no backstory. They pay no attention to it. They're people whose lives are totally directed by circumstance. So when that earthquake happens, everything crumbles. In a character-driven story, who we are is more important than what happens to us. This is why we want to live a character-driven life, because then, when that earthquake ha happens, we will already know where those fault lines are, and we will have strengthened the areas that are around it, so our character will still be intact. Living a plot-driven life, as opposed to living a character-driven life, is the difference between saying, well, no, I didn't need that, but I had to buy it, it was on sale. Or Philippians 4.11 that says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. It's the difference between saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. I know I'm married, but I cannot help it if I fall in love with someone else. It's the difference between that and 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that says love rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
It's the difference between saying, I can't quit that habit, it's just impossible, or I can't volunteer in children's church or go on a mission trip, or I can't get up and speak in front of people. After all, I'm an introvert, and what happens if I fail? You know, it's the difference between excuses and saying, I can't, and Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't a promise that means that you will succeed in everything that you do. It isn't a promise that means that life will be easy or comfortable. It isn't a promise that you will never, ever again not fall in a hole. But it is an assurance that no matter what God wants you to do, he will be right there with you, giving you the power to change your character, to become more like him, to lead a more character-driven life and to walk down another street. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for knowing all the backstory in our life and for caring about the details, for caring about each one of us and caring about our character. We ask that you would strengthen us in the ways that we need to be strengthened and give us real insight, clarity, and wisdom into the truth about who we really are. We thank you for today, Father, and ask that today would be a time to make a change in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, now we have a point in our service that we call our response time. And when I was researching a book a couple years ago, I did a lot of research on the brain, and I found that we often think once we hear something, the point where we would remember the most about it is right after someone finishes speaking. Actually, it's 10 to 15 minutes later. It's what you do with that time after you've heard someone speak that your brain is kind of shuffling through file folders and making connections and figuring out this I want to remember, this part I don't understand, oh, this I want to act on. That's one of the things that you can use this time for. If you have the character chart, you're welcome to just remain sitting in your seats to talk to God about these questions. Or perhaps you want to stand up and sing and worship with Marsh and the band. I also welcome if you want to humble yourself like David and pray before God for whatever area in your life. You're welcome to come and kneel down here in the front. For me, that always makes me recognize how much bigger God is than me. No one will disturb you right up here. Also, if there's something in your life where you want to walk down another street, an area that you want today to say, God, I want to change this, you can write it on one of the pieces of paper over here and you can nail it to the cross and leave it here. Or if you want to pray for God's light in the light of some, life of someone you know or more even in your own, you can come down here and pray and light a candle. Right next to that, we'll have the, um, an elder and members of the pastoral board are here to anoint you. The Bible talks about anointing and praying for people as a way of healing. They will pray for healing, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional. And in the back two corners, we also will have people who are there to pray with you over anything you want to talk about. Or perhaps God's moving you to give more of yourself. We talk about our tithes and offerings as being a form of worship here at Mountain Park. There's something you want to give more money to, there is an opportunity in the back. Or right through the center is a place where you can take communion. This is where you can spend time with God and just thank Him for His gift of what He's done in your life. So I want to invite you now to respond to God in whatever way He touches your heart.